Hello and welcome to this NJ Spotlight podcast, New Jersey's Energy Future Electric Vehicles, recorded December 14, 2017, in Hamilton, New Jersey. The world is turning away from fossil fuels as Britain, France, and China have all announced plans to phase out gasoline vehicles. In New Jersey, electrifying the state's transportation system, the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, is shaping up as a top priority in January when a new legislature and governor take office. What's the best way for New Jersey to move beyond a petroleum-based transportation sector? That's the topic of today's panel, and here to introduce the program is NJ Spotlight founding editor, John Mooney. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. And, and thank you for braving the uh, not-so-blizzard of 2017. Um, it, it, I was a little worried when I, when I saw forecasts, but I'm glad everyone made it okay. I'm John Mooney. I'm founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Um, oh, thank you. I think we're going to stop now. Thanks very much. Um, these are our, um, welcome to our roundtable on electric vehicles. Um, for those who don't know us, we've been around for about seven years uh, covering public policy in New Jersey. And uh, a key piece of, of what we've been doing is, is these events. And we do five or six a year. We've done something like 40 of them over our, our life uh, lifespan. And in some ways, it's just as important as the journalism, the printed journalism that we do. It's, uh, we like to call it our live journalism, where we actually get folks together and talking about these issues. I think it's uh, I, I say it often, we live in this online world where we're anonymous tags and the like, and, and the opportunity that we have to get together and actually see each other and see each other and talk face-to-face, -face, I think, is, is of great value. Um, and we've had a lot of success with them, and, and um, we hope this one, I'm, I'm sure it will be, uh, will provide a provocative and interesting uh, discussion. These things don't happen without support, and this is where I do my shameless end-of-year marketing. Um, and fundraising. Uh, we, we get our support from a variety of sources and one of them is folks like yourselves and our readers and, and, uh, and, and the communities out there. We are right now in the middle of a, of a $50,000 uh, end of year campaign that we're trying to raise um, by December 31st. The beauty of this one is we also have a match for up to 38,000 of that um, from a variety of, of organizations. It's part of a national campaign called Newsmatch 2017. Please, if you're not a member already or, or haven't given us even a small amount, uh, it, it goes a long way. And, and it allows us to put on events like this, allows us to continue doing the journalism that we do. And it's just very important. And it also allows us to feel really good about what we do and having your support. It's, uh, we started the membership drive a year ago. We now have about 1,000 members who are giving a minimum of $35, $35 a year. And it in addition to the financial support, it's just a wonderful moral and, and um, you know, spiritual backing to, to know folks are behind us and, and believe in us. It really makes a, a big difference for us. The other uh, key to these specific events is we have sponsorships, and, and it's really important, and I want to you know, take some time to, to thank our, our sponsors. We have seven for this one. That may be a record, Steve. Is that the most sponsors we've had? It's, it's really wonderful. It speaks to to uh, the interest out there around electric vehicles and where it's heading. I want to say a few words about each one. Um, Charge EVC, who we'll, we'll be hearing more from as well. Uh, it's a coalition made up of diverse interests founded in October 2016 with a mission to accelerate the electrification of transportation. Uh, its mission seeks equitable benefits for all of New Jersey citizens and electricity co customers 
It, and it also has received national attention in its approach in New Jersey and organizing similar approaches elsewhere uh, in other mid-Atlantic states. Uh, Atlantic City Electric. Uh, Atlantic City Electric provides safe and reliable, affordable energy service for more than uh, 550,000 customers, and as part of that service is engaged in several innovative programs and initiatives, including the advancement of electric vehicle technology. NJ Carr, New Jersey Coalition of Automotive Retailers, was founded in 1918, a nonprofit organization serving the state's 530 franchise new car and truck retailers. It, they employed 37,000 men and women last year and generated 34 billion in sales and contributed more than 1.68 billion to the state and local taxes. Uh, ChargePoint is the largest electric vehicle charging network in the world. Uh, has more than 43,000 independently owned charging spots and more than 7,000 customers. As of this year, ChargePoint drivers completed more than 31 million dollar, 31 million charging sessions, saving upwards of 30 million gallons of gasoline and driving more than 716 million gas-free miles. NG, NJIBEW, the New Jersey State Electrical, Electrical Workers Association, is made up of 20 IBEW locals throughout New Jersey, representing 35,000 members in construction, manufacturing, telecommunications, uh, railroads, and utilities. And uh, AAA Clubs of New Jersey provides automotive and, and travel insurance to 56 million members nationwide and nearly 2 million members in New Jersey. Uh, in, in the area of electric um, vehicles, there are 400 charging stations at a AAA-approved hotels and attractions, that, and they can be found with a little green plug icon. So I want to thank them especially. This doesn't happen without that, their support, and please give them a round of applause. They also, they also have a fair amount of uh, information you'll, you'll see on tables and elsewhere, um, and please check that out when you can and, and learn more about this and them. Um, so let's get started. Uh, I think the panelists have all joined us. The way this basically works is um, we're going to have a discussion among them, but we also like to include you all in, in that discussion. I have put on each of your desks or tables, and I have plenty more index cards. And if you have questions, or write them down, sort of wave. We'll be walking around the perimeter. Myself and other uh, NJ Spotlight staff will walk around the perimeter. We'll get those questions up to the moderator and he'll be able to incorporate them into the discussion. Um, that, that seems to work very well. We also, I'm told, have internet access, and I don't have that number. Do we have it again? For those who don't have it, uh, the promo code is for Hilton Garden Inn, but the promo code is 2017HILTON130. So feel free to use that, of course. Uh, there will be a story coming out of this. Um, Tom Johnson, our moderator and, and energy reporter, will be writing a story off of this. We will also be, in the, in the coming week or so, uh, publishing podcasts where, um, of segments of this discussion, which please do share with your, your friends and colleagues. It's a way to you know, um, turnkey this event so more folks can, can take advantage of it. So uh, I will uh, Leave it to Tom going next. I will introduce Tom Johnson. Uh, he's been our energy reporter from the beginning, one of our co-founders. Um, extraordinary reporter, has been covering these issues for 20 years or so, and, and really is uh, part of what we're all about in terms of providing analysis and, and insight into key issues. So, Tom Johnson, take it away. Thank you, John. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm just going to introduce um, Mark Warner. He's our uh, he's vice president of Gable Associates, and they've done a 
while they are nearing the completion of a very informative study about electric vehicles, and I'll let uh, Mark give an overview of it. It's uh, really an extraordinary study. So, uh, Mark. Thank you so much for coming out this morning. It's great to see so many people interested in this important topic. Um, so are you going to get that up? Do you want me to do something? Great, thank you. Um, uh, you know, as Tom mentioned, uh, I'm uh, Vice President with Gable Associates. We are supporting Charge EVC, uh, one of the sponsoring uh, organizations for this event. Uh, and we have been working over the last year with the support of the members of the Charge EVC Coalition to do a very intensive, very rigorous, very quantitative study of the electric vehicle market in New Jersey. And our goal was to provide a very state-focused foundation for policy development, discussion, program development, and basically uh, to help drive the, the early stage development of the electric vehicle market in New Jersey. Uh, as Tom mentioned, we're going to be publishing that uh, within a couple of weeks. We're in the final stages of wrapping up the review and comments. Um, and what Tom asked me to do this morning was uh, to just do a very quick preview, I'm going to do about a 10-minute version of what's normally a two-hour talk. So I just want to do some very quick highlights. And the goal was to give you a little bit of an idea of what's going to be covered in the study, but also to provide food for thought uh, on uh, the discussion that I'm sure the panel will be getting into. So... <clears throat> so uh, we've been working on this for about a year. It will be out within a couple of weeks. Uh, the scope for the study was looking specifically at New Jersey. Um, we are focused on, uh, this is a very quantitative study. Uh, for this first pass, we're focusing on light-duty vehicles. We're looking at the impacts of electric vehicles on especially the economy and the environment, as well as impacts on the utility system at large. Okay, so we'll go to this one. So, so the study is based on, um, looks like something, the gremlins are here today. So uh, the study is based on a very detailed simulation study of the energy market because when you think about it, electric vehicles have a lot of the impacts that we care about because of the impacts they have on energy systems. And so uh, we're an energy consulting firm. We do a lot of modeling and projections and analysis of the energy market so we looked at the impact of electric vehicles through the lens of what the impacts are on the energy system. And we did that through very, two very detailed simulation studies. One was we looked at a detailed dispatch simulation of the energy market in response to the changes in load that are going to result from people charging their cars with electricity rather than gasoline. And it changes the electric markets in some really profound ways. And we've been able to quantify what those impacts are. Secondly, we looked at the physical impacts of vehicle charging on the utility distribution system. Uh, we have all four of the electric utilities are in the Charge EVC coalition, and uh, we work with several of them to develop information that would help us understand what the implications are for the utility. So the results that I'm about to share with you are based very much on uh, uh, New Jersey conditions, and they're based on very specific simulation about those impacts. So we're also looking initially at uh, where New Jersey is in the market. As many of you know, we have a little over 10,000 plug-in vehicles in New Jersey as of the end of 2016. Um, the growth rate of that sales was about almost 80% higher in 2016 than it was in 2015. Uh, so we're now selling plug-in vehicles at, at more than twice the national rate. 
So the window is clearly starting to open, um, but we looked very closely at where New Jersey is compared to a lot of other market leaders. Uh, this chart just shows the per capita penetration of plug-in vehicles in New Jersey relative to other leading states. And the thing that's really different is these other leading states, many of them have implemented programs and policies that helped develop the market. Whereas New Jersey has done some of that, but not nearly as much. And you can see the result. The bottom line, uh, New Jersey's red over on the right, is that we have a little less than half of the, the plug-in vehicle penetration that the other leading states do. So if you go to the next slide. Uh, with that as context, let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of some of the key highlights. If you look at uh, what we have done compared to other leading states, what the potential is for programs and policies to change the market, along with natural changes that are happening in the market because of new vehicles becoming available, um, we think there's an opportunity for two to four times the adoption rate that's currently in place. So we think there's a lot of untapped opportunity in New Jersey. And if you really think about it from a market perspective, New Jersey is almost an ideal state for electric vehicles. So we think there's a lot of untapped opportunity, a big window of opportunity that's opening. And if we capitalize on that opportunity, there are significant benefits that result, both economic benefits as well as environmental benefits and others. Um, the study is going to quantify what those economic benefits are. The, the biggest thing to know, if you only walk out today with one thing from me, is to know this, that electric vehicles, because of the way they're going to charge their, those vehicles, it's going to change the loading on the public grid. And when you change the shape of that load curve, you change the cost of energy. And because of when most of these vehicles are going to be charged, which is mostly at night and mostly at home, that change is beneficial. Everybody's cost of power is going to come down because of the change in that load curve. Um, and it adds up to a lot. Uh, this is a benefit that applies to all the ratepayers. If you look at sort of the median growth curve that we're examining, um, it adds up to a little over $4 billion by 2035, uh, close to $20 billion out by 2050. So this is, a, this is an improvement that all ratepayers see, not just the folks driving the cars, but all the ratepayers. And it's a benefit that shows up through lower energy bills. Um, the folks that drive the electric vehicles see a significant impact as well. In short, it costs about half as much to fuel your car with electricity as it does with gasoline. Now, to put that in perspective, if you were to add up all the money that's going to be spent on maintenance and fuel between now and 2050, it's about $600 billion in New Jersey over the next 33 years or so. And a big chunk of that is fuel. And we're, in essence, cutting a big chunk of that almost in half. So even making very uh, generous assumptions, um, there are literally billions of dollars of savings that will accrue to the owners of the electric vehicles. We estimated it at almost $17 billion savings in operating expense through 2035. Um, there is a broader implication because we are, as I'll mention in a minute, we are reducing the social we're reducing carbon. That has a lot of broader implications, so we use the federal work that's been done on estimating the social cost of carbon and peg that as another benefit that results from EV adoption through reduced carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, that adds up to a pretty big number as well. We estimated it at uh, about $5.6 billion through 2035. Uh, we all, those are all, looking at those three components, those are all gross economic benefits. We also looked at the net economic impact uh, looking at the scenario where we spend some money to develop the market and also realizing that there will probably need to be some reinforcement of the public grid in response to electric vehicle adoption. Even after accounting for those costs, there are still very large net benefits. The primary scenario we looked at 
little over $2 billion of net savings by 20, uh, 2035, and that's only looking at the energy piece. So there are significant economic benefits. The environmental benefits are uh, amazing, to be honest, for those of you that are focused on sustainability and greenhouse gas reduction. Transportation is the largest component of the New Jersey greenhouse gas portfolio, and gasoline use in light-duty vehicles is the single largest emission segment in the entire portfolio. And what we're doing with electric vehicles is we're displacing um, gasoline emissions at the tailpipe with emissions from a power plant. And when you do that comparison, it's a huge net benefit. Uh, every electrically fueled mile in New Jersey is 70 to 80 percent cleaner than a gasoline fueled mile, given the current uh, generation mix. So the result is that if we put a lot of EVs on the road, there's going to be a huge reduction in CO2. Um, the, you know, the median case that we're looking at, even by 2035, gets the carbon down by around 30 percent or so. Um, there are significant implications for both utilities and the infrastructure itself. I'll go into that more in just a minute. Uh, but there's a huge opportunity here because there's going to be reinforcements that are done as part of the utilities responding to this change. And given that we're now making the loading more optimal, we can make the grid operation overall more optimal as well. So let's go to the next slide. This is just a summary of a little bit more detail on the economic benefits that I mentioned. The chart on the upper left is showing three different scenarios that we explored. Think about a low, medium, and high uh, adoption case. And it, it charts out the three different components of economic benefit that I talked about. Reductions in energy costs that accrue to everybody, savings for the EV drivers, and then social costs of carbon. And uh, you can see through 2035 in the maximum electrification case, uh, it's over $50 billion by 2035 of impact. Um, those numbers continue to grow out through 2050. And if you examine all of those together, we're looking at over $200 billion worth of impact for all three of those components by 2050. Uh, so it's a huge economic benefit. The benefit scales. The chart on the left shows the correlation between just the energy impact and PEV adoption as a percentage of the market. And you can see that it scales almost linearly. It's a very strong correlation. The more EVs on the road, the more economic benefit that results. Um, much of this energy benefit is delivered through reductions in wholesale prices. So it's a benefit that passes directly through to, uh, to consumers. Next slide. Uh, as I mentioned, the CO2 benefits are enormous. Uh, the curve on the lower left shows uh, the blue line is what the CO2 emissions would be if we didn't do EVs at all. So that's sort of the business as usual baseline projection. The green curve is how the CO2 emissions would decline over time as a result of our median case of EV adoption. And then the gold curve is if we put more EVs on the road, we see less CO2. So the black line along the bottom, many of you are probably familiar with the Global Warming Response Act. Uh, it sets goals in New Jersey for the reduction of CO2 by 2050, an 80% reduction compared with 2006. Uh, transportation has to be a big part of that, and a vehicle electrification is a very effective strategy for achieving those goals. And you can see, given the trajectories there, you know, this goes out to 2035, um, but we're making good progress towards that goal. If you look at the maximum electrification case, it gets us very close. We need to get down for the gas component of the inventory. We need to get down to about 8.4 million tons. The maximum electrification case gets us down to about 10.3. That's very, very close compared to where we are now, which is around 30. So um, we can get almost there through electrification. These curves assume business as usual in terms of the current grid and the carbon content of current generation. If we do two things in parallel, 
if we do massive EV adoption and continue to decarbonize the grid, these numbers get even better. So you're going to need both of those in order to achieve the uh, Global Warming Response Act goals. Uh, so the last thing I'll just touch briefly on is uh, the impacts on the utility. Uh, as I said, electric vehicles, most people are going to charge their cars the way they charge their phone. So uh, the majority of the energy delivered for vehicle charging is going to happen at home at night. That's a good thing because that's a relatively off-peak time. The reason the cost of energy comes down is because that aggregate cost that you pay on your power bill is a function of lots of energy bought at a lot of different times during the day. And energy bought at night is cheaper than energy bought during the day. So what happens with electrification is that you have a larger fraction of your overall energy buy is now in the cheaper hours. And that's why everybody's costs come down. But there's physical implications as well. Um, the, the key discovery that we had is that when you look at the neighborhood level, if you look at what's happening at a transformer level, where the issues start to come up is when you have multiple EVs. So for example, there's a lot of 25 kilowatt transformers in New Jersey. So if you have three homes on that transformer and they all plug in a seven kilowatt charger, just with EV charging, you've now uh, come close to the capacity of that charger. So there are going to be significant implications. Those implications start to emerge when you have more EVs than you have single phase transformers. And just the number to keep in the back of your mind is that's about 5% penetration. So it's not 20%, it's not 50%, it's around 5%. So the good news is there's a lot of headroom in the system. This is not like going to break the grid tomorrow. We've probably got somewhere between five and ten years where the impacts of electric vehicles are well within the operating profile of the utilities. But as we get into that five to ten percent penetration range, we're going to start to see more significant impacts emerge and reinforcement of the grid will be necessary. So this study suggests that in the ten to thirty percent range, that's where you're going to need to be doing a lot of reinforcement of the grid. And the good news is that the kinds of reinforcements that are going to be needed are the same kinds of things that we're doing for other reasons around grid modernization. So this is really a huge opportunity to optimize the loading on the grid and to optimize the, the physical engineering of the grid as well and to synergize the impact of electric vehicle electrification uh, with other things that are going on to modernize the grid at the same time. Um, so that was the, that's a very quick flyby. Um, the study will be out in about uh, two weeks or so, we're looking, um, and it'll be a, provide a very detailed analysis. It's intended to be a companion to the Charge EVC roadmap, which many of you are probably familiar with. The roadmap recommends a blueprint and a market development strategy for New Jersey, and the study will provide a lot of the foundation around the costs and benefits uh, of doing the things that are recommended in the roadmap and what the, what the uh, economic impacts especially would be. So uh, I think that's it, Tom, if there's, unless there's anything else. Thank you. That was a very fascinating overview, Mark, and should make people who are EV advocates uh, very uh, excited to, um, about the prospects for electric vehicles in New Jersey. Okay, we'll start right in with our panelists. I'm not going to give big introductions, and m most of them don't need it. Uh, first off, we'll uh, kick off with Assemblyman Dan Benson, whom I'm sure a lot of people know in the room. Uh, Dan's been in uh, this, your hometown, right? Hamilton Township. Uh, 
and he's chair of the Assembly Law and Public Safety Committee, and he's been a big advocate of uh, uh, cleaning up our air. Dan? Can everybody? Oh, that worked. It's probably one of the best microphones I think we've had at an event. Um, so just by way of background, I'm filling in for Senator Bob Smith, who's uh, definitely got a, a busy day ahead of him as he talks about uh, zero emissions and uh, the grid and, and our sources. Uh, but I'm happy to fill in for him. Uh, Senator Smith, along with my district mate, Senator Greenstein, often uh, sponsors much of the legislation dealing with electric vehicles or other clean energy legislation in the Senate. Myself and Tim Eustace and a host of other assembly members uh, do so and have been doing so on the assembly side. So one, thank you uh, for inviting me here and, and happy to join you to, to be a part of this discussion. And as I said earlier, welcome to Hamilton, my hometown, as well as the 14th district. Um, really, we have every aspect of this transformation that we're talking about, there's a role for state government. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing, actually, in this case. Oftentimes, we think when the state government gets involved, you know, let the markets decide, let's do all these other things. But really, in order to have the transformation that we're talking about, to get the benefits um, and, the, and to meet the goals that we've set for ourselves through legislation, through the Global Warming Response Act, we really need to lead here in the state in a way that we haven't up until this point. Um, we're at a unique crossroads here in New Jersey, particularly with new leadership coming in the governorship. We will have new heads uh, in the various departments, and we'll see some uh, new leadership in the legislature as well. And I think that's all good in the sense it gives us a chance to have a fresh look. Um, the key areas where I think we need to lead um, really is on the infrastructure side, and that's twofold. The infrastructure for charging stations. Um, we have a lot of the prime real estate that where we need to site these, whether it's uh, uh, rest stations on the Turnpike or the uh, Garden State Parkway and other areas, um, but also providing encouraging uh, regulatory uh, uh, support through zoning and planning. And that's something that we have to do in partnership with our counties and our municipalities. Um, secondly, we talked about the grid itself. And we have to work uh, as we see changes going on, probably in the leadership at the Board of Public Utilities as well. Uh, over the next couple of years, we need to make sure that they have the statutory authority and the flexibility um, when they're looking at infrastructure decisions through rate cases and through other ways to make sure that our utilities that are for reliability reasons, um, but also for this transformation, are making those right decisions to be supportive of adoption of electric vehicles. Um, but I also think the state government has a huge role in helping out consumers. So one is that range anxiety by making sure we encourage infrastructure. New Jersey being a very dense state makes it very easy um, to place uh, um, charging stations in such a way to cover the whole state with a minimal investment. Um, it also means, though, that we have to have rules in place on how they're sold, and you'll hear more from some of the other panelists on that, and making sure that experience is either the same or similar to what we have when folks buy a regular car, um, but also making sure that they understand that value proposition in terms of savings uh, versus gasoline um, and the environmental benefit that they provide. And lastly, I would say the other really major effort is as a purchaser and early adopter in the first place. Um, New Jersey, for the most part, has had a long history of having programs to encourage municipalities, counties, and the, own, uh, the state uh, fleet as well, whether it's with compressed natural gas, 
or whether it's with hybrid vehicles, um, we've provided incentives and encouragements uh, to, for those purchasing. If we are going to meet those goals, uh, New Jersey has to step up to the plate as well as a purchaser. So we need to make sure that recognition uh, is in everything that we do. Uh, and those incur uh, there's encouraging either legislation or uh, incentives for our local governments to do the same for their fleets. Um, so I think those are the general areas where we can be extremely helpful. Um, that all takes money. And a lot of that in a constrained resource environment uh, is going to be part of the discussion. I think it's important to realize that this is not an either or, it's all of the above, um, particularly in that question of it's not only about adopting and trying to expand the growth of electric vehicles. We would love to see it supercharged from two to four uh, times uh, of the adoption that we've seen. But we also have to make sure as we're expanding that use that we're expanding um, the grid itself, the power on the grid, that it continues to be um, something that is a mix of mostly zero emissions, or at least that's where we're seeing the growth, uh, if we're going to meet the Global Warming Response Act goals. So there's a lot of work to do, and the legislature has a big play in that, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Assemblyman. <laughs> Next up is Jim Appleton. He's president of New Jersey Corps, and he's been around a long time, just like me. So uh, he knows what needs to be done and how the beard used to be a different that. color, Tom. That's uh, right. <coughs> We've known uh, each other that long. <laughs> great. Well, uh, thanks for the uh, opportunity to be here, and some of thanks for your leadership in the uh, legislature on these issues. Um, th there's no doubt that uh, technology-forcing mandates of federal and state governments uh, over the last decades have resulted in a lot of new fuel and uh, fuel efficient and environmentally friendly vehicles. Uh, but the sad fact, I'm afraid to say, is that alternative technology vehicles still account for just a very small piece of the new car market in New Jersey. The trend for alternative fuel vehicle sales has been uh, disappointingly stagnant. Uh, in 2008, uh, New Jersey new car buyers purchased 10 ZEVs, just 10 ZEVs. Last year, in 2016, for the first time ever, uh, Zev's top, Zev sales topped 1,000 units. Uh, now that's progress, uh, but Zev's currently account for just two-tenths of 1% of the new car market in New Jersey. Uh, I have a slide that I wanted to show, uh, the first of those two slides. Uh, and next year, uh, the New Jersey clean car law requires that 4.5% of all vehicles delivered by manufacturers for sale in the Garden State must be ZEVs. That's 24,000 vehicles, 24 times what was sold just last year. And that's just the start. The ZEV sales mandates ramp up exponentially from there. I guess this slide didn't come out as big as I would like, but uh, if you take a look at this slide, the bottom line shows what has been the historic rate of growth, which is only about 12% year over year. Uh, last year was a better year as as, uh, as Mark uh, pointed out, but uh, so that's the bottom line, kind of flatlined, right? And that's if you extend out into the future, uh, the next five to ten years, what ZEV sales would be if they continued at the current pace. Uh, the line on top uh, is what the um, uh, is what the uh, uh, CARB mandate, the federal mandates, uh, or the uh, the California Air Resources Board mandates uh, require. Um, that, uh, that number, uh, we estimate, would be uh, 
would require New Jersey new car dealers to sell uh, more than 550,000 ZEVs in this state between 2018 and 2025. Uh, now, naturally, uh, new car dealers, my members, uh, want to sell all of those cars and more. Uh, that's why they're in business. Uh, but let's face it, dealers want to sell what consumers want to buy. And right now, consumers do not want to buy ZEVs at anywhere near the numbers mandated. This is a major concern for new car dealers, and it is compounded by the fact that available ZEV product is not priced right. Let's take a look at the next slide. Again, it's tough to, tough to see this, uh, but what this slide shows is the incredible or difficult uh, to overcome gap in price between internal combustion engine, ICE uh, product, and comparable EVs. Uh, now, we all know that uh, battery and manufacturing prices for EVs are coming down uh, quickly, uh, and, they're, uh, and that's a, a good thing, but they're not coming down fast enough. Uh, and frankly, there's another legal or structural issue that compounds the problem. New Jersey's clean car law actually doesn't require automakers to place ZEVs in service. It simply requires manufacturers to deliver cars for sale in New Jersey. This delivered for sale mandate allows automakers to earn their clean car credits by simply dumping ZEVs on dealer lots in New Jersey. If manufacturers can game the system by simply delivering cars to dealers, they have no incentive to equip or price ZEVs to sell. Unsold clean car inventory, in turn, uh, does nothing to clear the air in New Jersey, and unsold inventory imposes a heavy financial burden on the new car dealers in the state. These financial and structural legal issues have impeded ZEV sales, but so has the lack of existing infrastructure. Uh, we estimate that right now New Jersey has only about 500 charging stations spread throughout the state. Somebody else here may have better numbers, uh, but that doesn't compare very well to the uh, 3,500 um, gas stations uh, with probably 25,000 pumps uh, that uh, so obviously we have a long way to go uh, to build out the infrastructure in order to alleviate uh, what we all know is that uh, is one of the, the big obstacles to purchasing ZEVs, range anxiety. Uh, so the infrastructure needs to be dramatically expanded. Uh, park and rides, municipal parking lots, shopping malls, commercial office complexes, big box grocery stores, uh, big box stores, grocery stores, convenience stores, restaurants, and virtually any place where individuals park for any period of time are prime locations for charging stations. Building and facility owners need to know, first, there is a current demand for charging stations. Secondly, the demand is growing. Third, electric charging stations are an amenity that consumers will come to expect, just like a public restroom, complimentary Wi-Fi or free coffee, or a water cooler. And fourth, uh, that offering charging facilities is and will increasingly become good for business. It's a marketing tool and a business differentiator that can produce real benefits to any business's bottom line. Since the New Jersey clean car law was uh, passed more than a decade ago, NJ Carr has warned that it is going to be difficult to grow the ZEV market from where it is today to where it has to be in 2025 and beyond. We need an aggressive game plan to offer uh, consumer incentives and to build a robust EV charging infrastructure. NJ Carr is pleased to be working with our uh, colleagues and other EV stakeholders in the Charge EVC group to help develop uh, a plan, a game plan that will work. 
And we know that if state and federal regulators, elected officials, automakers, and public utilities pull together to address the most pressing infrastructure and affordability challenges, franchise new car dealers in New Jersey and across the country will be relentless in promoting, selling, and delivering electric vehicles to more and more consumers. Thanks, Jim. Uh, we'll go to Kevin. Kevin Miller is Director of Public Policy for ChargePoint, and he's uh, laid out a pretty uh, aggressive charge for guys like you. How are you going to meet it? We're really excited about the opportunity here, and I'd love to uh, walk through uh, some of uh, the key aspects that uh, uh, are at hand uh, on the infrastructure side and talk about how this whole charging ecosystem exists now and can evolve to meet growing needs. Um, so apologies in advance, there are some uh, transitions and such on this, so I'm going to be leaning on you. Uh, so uh, hi, I'm Kevin Miller. I'm the Director of Public Policy for ChargePoint. We can hit the next slide. Uh, ChargePoint is the world's largest and most open network of electric vehicle charging stations. We were founded in 2007 uh, when we invented the smart or networked charging station uh, before there were actually any EVs on the road. Uh, smart charging stations allow you to get data, insights, set pricing, access controls to the station, as well as manage the energy uh, directly with the chargers themselves. Uh, we've got the largest community out there of drivers, over 380,000 drivers uh, on our network, uh, and they plug in uh, once every two seconds. With uh, 43,000 charging spots, we're, we're adding 600 every month, and uh, demand is growing, and we're seeing more and more uh, folks get involved in hosting charging stations themselves. Uh, we've got uh, 31 million charging sessions under our belt, and we've raised $300 million in private funding. Uh, it's a, a reliable uh, industry that we're uh, part of and that we're building. Uh, we have support for drivers 24-7, and we also provide wraparound maintenance and services. So what I want to note is that, by and large, of those 43,000 charging stations, we don't really own any of them. We design, manufacture, and sell those charging stations to independent site hosts, to some of the folks that Jim pointed out, uh, a whole range of different types of uh, individuals, families, fleets, businesses, and communities get involved in the EV charging uh, ecosystem. We also provide the network services to help those independent site hosts run their stations um, and uh, offer uh, maintenance and support. So what's key about transportation electrification is that it's a true paradigm shift in the way that refueling takes place. Um, it's going from a situation to from where refueling happens on the way to a destination, right, the pit stop, and we're transitioning to a place where refueling is now happening when you arrive at your destination. Uh, so uh, charging will take place uh, at home, work, on the go, but the majority of charging, is, as has been mentioned, will be taking place at uh, home and at work. Over 90% of charging is going to be taking place at those two locations, residential overnight as well as workplace. Half of the energy on our uh, New Jersey stations uh, is consumed. Uh, at workplace uh, locations. So these key places where you're going to be leaving your vehicle on average 20 to 23 hours a day unused is where you can really see some value. And those are places where people are going and you can activate a lot of interest for site hosts uh, to come into uh, the network. Uh, the remaining 5 to 10 percent, though, uh, is critical. Uh, dealing with some of those range anxiety issues, public charging uh, can be uh, uh, a key place where we need to uh, expand. And having um, a sustainable amount of fast chargers uh, out there uh, will be key to meeting that need. 
uh, we produce a range of different uh, products to meet those needs, everything from the left, the uh, level two so-called uh, uh, stations for uh, home and residential situations, moving on to higher power stations. On the right is our DC Fast Charger Express Plus platform, which can charge a truck, a bus, or a light duty vehicle in 10 minutes or less. So uh, there's a range of different use cases and a range of different solutions. There is no one size fits all approach to EV charging. Um, and light duty vehicles are really just the beginning, right? This is some of the most exciting, uh, uh, these are some of the most exciting aspects is that we're not just focusing on individuals with their own light duty vehicles, though, uh, Pam, you have a lovely uh, Chevy Bolt and I'm very jealous of it. Uh, but what we're seeing now is uh, ferries, uh, aviation, heavier duty electrification, uh, a lot of uh, opportunities to democratize access uh, to clean transportation. And beyond just the different types of vehicles, uh, vehicle autonomy, uh, shared use mobility, uh, and uh, the, the rise of uh, fleets as taking a real central role in our transportation systems will require the solutions to be flexible, to evolve, and to make sure that we're not uh, tying our hands now. We need to make investments now and focus on policy options now that leave uh, ourselves flexible to developments as they go. In uh, New Jersey, uh, we've seen some exciting growth in the market. Uh, as of uh, the third quarter of this year, we've got about 14,000 some odd vehicles on the road. Uh, since 2013, from 2013 to 2016, 30% uh, uh, rate of growth and uh, Navigant um, research projects uh, that by 2019, we're gonna triple the vehicles on the road uh, and by 2022 have a 60% uh, growth uh, from there. The charge point spots in our uh, network in New Jersey, we've got uh, in the range of uh, 600 and since 2012, we've uh, had a growth rate of uh, 47%. Um, this uh, network in uh, New Jersey, we've seen 250,000 charging sessions, which is equivalent to 1.4 gigawatt hours of electricity or uh, 610, uh, not kilograms, but I think 610,000 kilograms of uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions reductions. Uh, so there's a, a lot that is already taking place and there are ways that we can sustainably accelerate that. Uh, and what I'd like to try and close with is uh, five recommendations uh, for ways to think about uh, achieving that uh, acceleration uh, to embrace the first uh, electric vehicle pun of the morning uh, to uh, help uh, really get to a sustainable uh, place where uh, the growth in the market on the vehicle and the infrastructure side are self-sustaining. So first, uh, we, uh, so this is not a holdover uh, from uh, the uh, presentation I gave to my son last night, uh, but we do need to start uh, by eating our fruits and veggies before we get to our treats. Uh, we need to think about uh, some of the tougher nuts to crack on the policy side. How are we uh, ensuring that the buildings that we're putting in place today, uh, the new construction, is EV ready? It costs more to install an electric vehicle charging station than to buy it. And that's because you have to tear up the concrete and retrofit parking spaces to do so. These are uh, difficult conversations to have and they're not as exciting, uh, but they're really impactful. Uh, making sure that we're uh, having multi-unit dwelling uh, policies in place to make it easier for folks to install uh, a vehicle charger uh, in their residence when they don't necessarily own the location or how do we deal with dense urban environments where you don't have dedicated charging. Uh, that said, uh, the treats are nice too and it's important to be able to focus on uh, the things that are more exciting to talk about like incentives, uh, but it's, uh, as has been mentioned, not an either or approach and we need to have a well-balanced diet as we uh, dive into policy. Um, one of the key opportunities here with transportation electrification 
is the opportunity to mitigate impacts on, on low income and environmental justice communities, transit deserts where uh, the uh, supply is far outpaced by the demand uh, for a shared mobility, uh, as well as uh, mitigating impacts on ratepayers. Uh, as we build out a new uh, infrastructure, uh, this is the opportunity to get it right and make sure that it's done so in an equitable fashion. And as we get to heavier duty electrification, uh, this is something that should be in the front and center to make sure that we're creating a fair and open access uh, to uh, clean transportation. As we think about uh, how we leverage uh, more folks into the charging ecosystem, uh, it's important to make sure that we're establishing clear statewide guidelines for doing so. Uh, we need to accelerate uh, transportation electrification, but it has to also embrace uh, the competitive market, and it needs to make sure that we're being flexible enough to support some of those innovations that are going to be necessary on the charging side from uh, autonomous vehicles, again, and as the rise of shared mobility comes up. So uh, we partner with uh, our uh, utility friends across uh, the country uh, to work on programs where uh, both uh, private and regulated uh, charging uh, programs are uh, combining, and uh, setting a clear statewide uh, set of criteria is key uh, to make sure that uh, the, what comes out of those processes uh, works in the long run. Uh, as we look to the possibility of uh, engaging regionally, uh, either by uh, commitments to the ZEV Memorandum of Understanding, right now we've got 3.3 million EVs or ZEVs committed to hit the roads by 2025 by, by eight states. Uh, you know, 3.6 million would be uh, an even more exciting number if we could uh, see opportunities to commit there. Uh, but there's also other regional uh, uh, programs for dealing with transportation emissions reductions. It's important that we also take care of our own uh, internal uh, plans, right? We need to develop a statewide uh, roadmap, uh, make sure that we're incorporating a full range of stakeholders and making sure that whatever ideas that we come up with complement the good things that we're already doing or that we'll be able to do soon such as investments with the Volkswagen Appendix D mitigation fund. And then lastly, um, as uh, Mark mentioned, there's going to be so much that's important on the uh, electric grid side uh, that we need to have a discussion around the way that those electricity rates are set to make sure that we're minimizing costs for doing some of those exciting residential uh, charging uh, programs to have uh, time of use rates that can be uh, sustainably uh, deployed and uh, at minimal cost to ratepayers, and also Think about what are the way that we need to structure rates on the faster charging side. Uh, commercial rates are structured with you know, industrial factories in mind that have this large consistent load, uh, but uh, electric vehicle charging, especially fast charging, is short bursts of really high energy. So we need to make sure that we're right-sizing uh, our uh, regulations and policies to meet the need and support that moving forward. Thank you, Kevin. That was very good. Um, Next up is Karen Lefkowitz. Uh, Karen's uh, Vice President of the Utility of the Future, which is an entirely different topic that we should focus on sometime in the future for Pepco Holdings. I'm sorry. But, uh, Thank you. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be here. And, and, and this is the utility of the future. Electric vehicles are, are a large part of it. So um, uh, first of all, I have to say, um, a number of people covered a lot of the subjects that I was going to talk about, so I'll probably shrink my time a little bit. But um, I wanted to start by saying I'm a huge EV advocate. I'm also an EV owner, um, an early adopter. I have a Chevy Bolt, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled with it. Um, there are a lot of things that when, when we talk about electric vehicles, um, and when I speak, and I speak uh, in lots of places around the country and inter internationally, 
I always talk about the fact that EVs are going to change the world. We think largely about four-wheeled resi um, um, residential cars. Uh, we've heard uh, Kevin mention uh, a little bit about the alternative fleets. Um, there are lots and lots of opportunities to electrify our transportation. And when you start breaking it down, you start to see opportunities everywhere. For example, um, school buses. School buses have really short routes, and they're big vehicles. And so they can handle a charge. The charge will get them around their route and back pretty readily with today's technology. Um, as you look into the future, there are new technologies that people are, are looking at, like inductive charging um, built into streets. So when we think about forward, um, yes, wow, it's very cool. Uh, when we think about forward policy we th and think about constructing buildings uh, to be friendly to this technology, um, we also have to think about road construction. And, and are we going to embrace this technology when it comes out? How long do you wait for a technology to mature? Um, when's it right to dive in? And these are not simple questions from a policy perspective. Um, an awful lot of these kinds of issues get uh, worked out in arcane committees that deal with standards and um, uh, like, for example, um, what will the charging standard be? Uh, right now, if you own a Tesla, uh, you can charge at any charging <coughs> station, but only a Tesla owner can charge at a Tesla charger, right, because they have a different standard charger. Um, and, and so you would expect to see some of this stuff normalizing over time. Um, so there's been a lot of comments made about the grid infrastructure that supports um, charging, and, and it is an interesting dilemma. So while um, the study that Mark was talking about earlier said the inflection point is at around 5%, uh, what we know is that um, buying EVs is a retail trend just like every other retail trend. And we know that trends run through neighborhoods. And so we may actually see um, times when we need to monitor closely the local distribution transformer in a neighborhood because all of a sudden a bunch of people in that neighborhood uh, have purchased an EV, even though we're well under a 5% mark. And so while we're talking about investments on a macro level, you can use things like 5%, but as the local utility, we cannot look at the macro. We plan for the macro, but we operate to the micro. So we are 24 hours a day operating that grid. We need to have the right kind of data and information to do so. Now, while I'm very bullish around EVs and, and future grid technologies, I have to say New Jersey's a little bit behind the curve in, in a couple of ways. One, of one way is um, they have not yet invested in uh, advanced metering infrastructure, which essentially is a sensor at every premise that gives us data about what's going on. And why is this important? Because we don't know what the actual load is at an individual distribution transformer. We don't know that today. The way we know it in all of our other jurisdictions, um, when we operate in Delaware and Maryland and Washington, D.C., is that we're getting loading information from each premise. We know what premise is attached to which distribution transformer we can aggregate it and see the trend. We can also aggregate it and see if somebody is doing something that's a really high load at night, and it's different than what they used to be. In other words, are they plugging in a car and charging it? It's a pretty uh, observable load change, and while nobody has to tell us when they buy an EV, 
we can generally see it where we have the data. Unfortunately, we don't have that data in New Jersey. So one of the things to think about is as we move forward with this revolution on the, on the vehicle end, are we going to have the right metering infrastructure in place to be able to give the visibility to the utility to continue to manage the grid? And I think um, that was some of the, the hints that Mark was making about uh, infrastructure investment. Um, the other thing that we are doing is innovative pricing. So we've talked about having uh, time of use rates and off-peak pricing. One of the other things that we want to think about as a policy issue is currently utilities are obligated to use a metering structure, infrastructure that meets pretty high standards. And that's something that we all want. We want to make sure that the meter that's measuring how much energy you're using and therefore how much you're spending is pretty accurate. And you want it accurate to a very, very high degree. Um, unfortunately, what that means is if we want to put in an innovative price, uh, like an off-peak price for just an EV charger, we've got to install a separate meter, and it's got to be a revenue-grade meter that's authorized by um, the BPU. Um, now, interestingly, the chargers, like ChargePoint's charger and other chargers, already have really good infrastructure in them that could be a real, a real reasonable um, proxy for a revenue-grade meter. But we will have to go through some kind of regulatory process in order to get that approved. And there will be people who say, but that isn't the same standard that the rest of the meters meet. And that may be true, but we have to consider the cost versus the benefit. There's a lot of extra cost involved in installing that second meter. Um, and, and certainly, it's well offset by the difference in the, in the grade of metering um, that's available. And, and so the other thing that, that we're talking about um, challenges that have to do with either regulatory approval or policy, and you've heard people talk about how New Jersey lags in sales, and we've got all these problems. And um, by the way, even though I don't live in New Jersey now, I, I was born and raised here, um, the, the fact is the path to get to where we need to be in New Jersey is already pretty well documented in other states. And so one of the things that you look at when you see this big giant gap between where we are and where we want to be, it can look scary and unachievable. But let me assure you, if you look at the chart in California, from where they started and where they are, they more than made up the kind of gap that we see in New Jersey in the same amount of time, right? They put, they put in incentives. They made it the state mission to meet those goals. Manufacturers said, gee, I better come up with a car if I want to continue selling in California. Drove the manufacturers to do things. Those same cars are now going to appear at all kinds of price points because of the new uh, California mandates. We're going to start seeing them in other states being offered so there's more opportunity for buyers at all income levels. Um, and so we see that there is a path to get there. But I agree with what everybody else has said so far. It takes um, political will to put forward the state policies. It takes collaborative action by the manufacturers and the service providers. And then, of course, it takes really smart marketing to consumers. Right. So the thing I'll leave you with is um, we still a labor under this misimpression that only wealthy people can buy EVs. I am not a wealthy person. I own an EV. 
Um, but we also believe that low-income people can't own EVs. Um, if you look at the first generation of Nissan Leafs that only had a 100-mile range, and so, excuse me, they had very limited market, um, they're most, they were mostly leased vehicles. Those vehicles are coming off lease. They're hitting the secondary market. Um, they are going to be deeply, deeply discounted. They're going to become a great opportunity for people to get a second car or even a primary car for short hauls all throughout the country where they were selling. Some of those are going to make their way into New Jersey if they're not here yet. And we're going to increasingly see those secondary market opportunities start arising. And so we need to be prepared to service new cars um, and, and um, the, the older EVs just in the same way we do with gas-powered cars. So I'm going to leave it and uh, turn it over to Pam, yeah, Pam is Vice President of uh, Gable Associates and CEO of uh, EVC. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Karen. Thanks um, for everybody on the panel. So I'm, I'm, I find myself smush between all these interests, which is, which is great. Um, you know, folks that are, are maintaining the distribution system, which is vital to how our world works today. Folks that are innovating and installing and selling the, um, the infrastructure that we need to connect the cars to this uh, distribution system and, and, and the people that actually sell these cars. Uh, that's, okay, for another metaphor, where the rubber meets the road here. Couldn't resist. Um, and, and making sense of all these interests is, is one of the things we, we uh, delight in, I should say, at Charge EVC. Um, to, to the point of, of uh, I never liked physics. Um, physics always sort of confounded me. And, um, and I still struggle with this term acceleration, right? It's like the fire-breathing dragon for me of motion variables. But a lot of people struggle with acceleration. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we are in a place right now where we are about to see some very significant paradigm shifts, as, as Kevin was talking to. And this notion of acceleration, when you, when you really think about the acceleration of electric vehicles, it, it's it's extremely profound. It's profound for everybody sitting around here. I mean, for folks like Karen, they they've they're used to dealing with load, energy load that kind of stays in one place. It doesn't get up and move all over the place, right? That's what these cars are doing. It's it's now mobile load we're dealing with, right? For the folks that Jim works with, for the dealers that sell these cars, you know, when a car comes in for service, they're used to a vehicle that looks a certain way. And all of a sudden, you know, coming in to service your vehicle is going to look more like an appointment at the Geek Squad, right? There's These are some really profound changes. Um, I... I, I want to just back up for a second and say, you know, when we thought about this several years ago, we understood, at least from an energy perspective, how profound the shift was going to be. And, um, and now we have a governor-elect that has really run on a platform of the green economy. And so I want to pull back from a, for a moment for folks of us who were born and raised in the state and, ma and made and raised their families here. Um, we are in a really unique position in New Jersey, I think, to gain quite a bit if we get this right. Um, we, I think we have the opportunity, given that we are sort of a greenfield of conditions, that we're sort of really behind the curve, we have an opportunity to vault into a position of national leadership um, f with, a, with a, a few, I'm not going to say simple, but with a few very profound leadership actions we can take. I'm going to come back to that in a second. 
Um, we, we stand to, to gain from the innovation and to become a leadership hub for next generation manufacturing, for battery manufacturing, for all the things that come to you when you get out in front of a trend early and strong. Um, and then there's another layer of this, which I think New Jersey could also stand to lead regional efforts as uh, we expect, and, and the, uh, the governor-elect uh, uh, was intending for us to get back into Reggie, there are those folks, some of whom are sitting around in this room, that are starting to think about markets for, uh, for transportation emissions similar to, to what we see in Reggie. So I think the state has an awful lot to gain if we get this right. Uh, the question really comes down to how the heck do we do this? This is actually an incredibly complex area. And um, when Charge VC took a look at this, and, and, and this is, you know, I started by saying acceleration really freaks a lot of us out. And acceleration freaks us out because, again, it's jarring, right? You know, we're used to sort of things moving as they were, and then all of a sudden something really changed, and it's abrupt. So government is not really designed to deal well with acceleration. I think the assemblyman would probably agree with that, right? You, you move slowly by design, right? You're supposed to be thoughtful and incremental and, and deliberate, thank you. And this is, uh, this, is, this is really moving quite fast and that means there's some challenges. We understood that several years ago and, and I think with that understanding, we embarked on, on creating this coalition and coming up with this roadmap, sitting in back of me, back at that table there, which was gonna try to, uh, really try to get a lot of the work done um, in conjunction with our policymakers in the state. So the study that Mark led and the roadmap that, that the members um, uh, ultimately decided to uh, come forward with, was a process that took a good year, and it was in consultation with not just our members, but our partners in state government as well. So we were really trying to bring everybody along as we were trying to come up with, well, what do we need to do and how do we do it? And so the eight policy recommendations that we came up with in the roadmap were really designed to help us meet this acceleration challenge. So when we have a new governor taking office and they say, what do we do in this? We say, hey, we, we actually have a roadmap here. We've got some recommendations. And by the way, we've got a broad group of interests that's fully supporting this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna just um, uh, focus for a second on the few very high impactful things we think we can do in the state uh, relatively quickly um, that would, I think, vault us into a national leadership position. Um, and, and what I'm going to mention here, and this is what was so important in, in the study, is these are, not, um, these are not initiatives that are gonna touch our state budget. And these are not initiatives that are necessarily going to come up as net costs. We actually stay ahead with de demonstrated benefits for electricity consumers. So it's very important you know, uh, when policymakers want to create policy and embrace programs, yeah, they want to be progressive and forward-leaning, but they always also have to think about the implications on the cost side. And the great news here is we've done that math. And, and guess what? Like Tom, you said, we should all be excited about this because it's a good story. So first thing we really want to see is a DCFC network in the state of New Jersey. That just means fast charging blanketing the state, so we eliminate that one big barrier that people have for buying electric cars, which is the range anxiety, and folks in the room are, I'm sure, familiar with that term. Um, 
the second thing is we've got to close that that gap. Jim talked about these cars are still a bit on the uh, expensive side. They're not all Teslas. They're coming out in all shapes and sizes in the next 24 to 36 months, but there's still a bit of a premium, and we need to close that gap with rebates. And we've got more than we've got. We can substantiate that because again, the benefits, the demonstrable benefits, are going to stay ahead of the costs of those rebates. So we need to get that in place. Um, and then, actually, uh, one of the most uh, important things is just basic awareness. How many people in this room even know that there's electric cars in the market that can get 250 miles to the charge? Well, that's not a fair question. This is an informed room. But most of the people you're going to talk with over the holidays have no idea. They really have no idea. And so people just, before you can educate someone, they have to know it's an option. So there's a whole big awareness campaign that has to happen. And then um, the, the last point, certainly it's not last in terms of priority, but and it was mentioned before, it's something near and dear to my heart, which is the car has now become this piece of technology that actually can clean the air. And before this technology came along, we did not have anything nearly as impactful as this. It means the people that have been suffering these disproportionate air quality um, in the state, and I don't think Marty Johnson is here. I know he was supposed to be today, but Marty, who leads Isles, can certainly talk to this much better than I can. He spent his whole life you know, devoted to these urban areas and trying to make life better. Um, this is probably the most impactful action we can take to clean up the air that I've seen in my life that most people that have looked at this have seen in their lifetimes. And so that's just profound for all the reasons uh, we can understand. Um, and I, I guess that's um, um, maybe the, the best way to end this uh, part is I, I, we are just faced with a profound opportunity here uh, to make some really significant changes in areas that we all care about. And it's gonna come down to, as we've all agreed, the leadership, not just leadership at the top, but leadership in the key government agencies and in the private sector and in the NGO sector and, and this is maybe one of the most um, difficult things, the coordination. <laughs> it's, gonna, it, it's a new area. The BPU has to talk to the DEP. They have to talk to the DOT. They, that is, is, is going to be um, a challenge. Uh, uh, not that it can't be overcome, but it is something different. Thank you, Pam. Uh, I just want to remind everybody, if anybody wants to ask a question, we have index cards on the table, film out, somebody will bring it up to me. Um, uh, I'll start off with Assemblyman Benson. You talked about uh, the cost, and um, there's uh, several, uh, Pam mentioned that there's, uh, it's not going to impact the budget. There's a couple funds out there that people have talked about spending, uh, uh, providing the revenue for this, uh, you know, the rejoining Reggie, the money from Reggie. That, that's a big one. Also, the, the Volkswagen settlement, obviously, right. is the other kind of larger pool. Um, and I think they get you part of the way. Um, but remember, we also have clean energy monies that have been diverted to a large extent over the last eight years to close budget gaps. And the question is, can we wean ourselves off of that and free up additional money for this, these types of investments? And that's the kind of leadership that we have to look at and, and really try to take a, a leadership role. Um, when we did the, the press conference with ChargeEVC, um, in part of that roadmap, it did detail where the costs would be, uh, the low-hanging fruit for the things that don't, particularly some public-private partnerships, as well as tapping into monies that are exi already existing um, or through better coordination targeting. 
but still, if we're going to meet the goals that we need to, there is going to need to be an investment, whether that's an investment that's kind of more hidden because it's coming out of the ratepayers, um, or it's, again, um, trying to figure out how to monetize the savings that's coming from not using gasoline and using electricity, but that's a savings over a period of time. How do you capture that up front and recognize that? And so that requires maybe new models of financing and things that we saw, um, much like we did with renewable energy, with solar panels and others. So the, the key there is, as we try to reduce um, greenhouse gases, the question is, how do we make sure that, because it doesn't matter which is the, where the carbon emissions are coming from, whether it's from a power plant or a point source of a car, reducing that emission is still the same across all of that. So how do we set up this complex system that looks at all these different uh, areas, transportation, um, power production, and, and, uh, and other electrical uses, that at the end of the day still reaches that same goal for the least amount of cost per, per uh, reduction in carbon? Okay, uh, Jim, you were uh, the lone person who projected a less than a very electric optimistic uh, picture on, on this uh, whole subject. What uh, uh, Pam talked, uh, the roadmap talks about getting 300,000 uh, vehicles on the uh, road by what, 2030? 2025. Uh, is that realistic even with rebates? Um, maybe. Um, look, I'm, I'm not here to be the skunk at the garden party. Um, you know, I, I, in order to get to 300,000 vehicles, you got to get to 3,000 vehicles. Um, and in order to get to, you know, 50% of the market, you got to get through 2% of the market. Um, I think there are some, uh, you know, take a walk down memory, memory lane, uh, Tom. The legislature, when they enacted the clean car law, actually called for a group of stakeholders to study where we were and where we had to go. And successive governors, both sides of the aisles, decided in their infinite wisdom that they weren't going to impanel uh, that study group because, God help us, if they actually came up with recommendations that state government would actually have to take action on. Now our backs are against the wall. 2018 is here. I think there's uh, a bill in the uh, Senate on Monday for that court. Yeah. Well, but but you know it's 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 too little, too late. Um, you know we we've lost a decade of planning and structuring that could have put us in a much better position. That's why California is where California is. That and the way that carb credits get allocated, and I won't bore everybody here with that. But I can tell you that um, you know we're all in. The the new car dealers are all in on EVs now. Um, we see that in New Jersey, EVs will, will have opportunities and will play a significant role. But we're not blind to the obstacles, and I think that that's really where this, this conference and where, where our work with Charge EDC comes in is, you know, first and foremost, I can't overemphasize the, the fact that the, that the current statute has a structural um, infirmity that will um, make it, uh, that will, will eliminate from manufacturers the incentive to properly price and equip EVs in a way that will ensure we reach our goals. We have to address that. We, I've been working with um, dealer groups from the nine other Cal-ZEV states to lobby CARB to make that change. They came very close this year. Uh, New Jersey could make that change if they chose to, and I think it would help tremendously. Um, secondly, with all due respect, Assemblyman, uh, government has to put their money where its mouth is. Um, you know, it's. Uh, it's, it's cash on the hood 
that will move cars. And we've identified some sources of money. Uh, we are also looking at you know, the Volkswagen and, and, and Reggie and you know, all kinds of, but you know, social benefit charge uh, you know, can, can provide cash on the hood. The other thing is be a little bit smarter about the incentives that New Jersey has. Right now, a pure ZEV pays no sales tax. Um, there are budget implications for when we get to 50% of the market, but let's put that off to the side for a moment. I don't for the life of me understand why um, hybrids, which get partial ZEV credits uh, under the CARB program, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and you know, vehicles like the Volt. Uh, the Volt is a great solution for a lot of people. It gets zero tax uh, benefit, uh, sales tax benefit in New Jersey. I think that's a mistake. So I think there are some things that we can do to, um, to, to provide better savings for consumers, and there are things that we can do to put cash on the hood that will actually move this market. So it's a long answer to a simple question, which is, yeah, sure, if we do the right things and we do all the infrastructure work that needs to be done, um, sure, I think we can get there. Okay, I didn't mean to imply anything there, uh, Jim. <laughs> uh, Kevin, um, you're uh, familiar with other states, and you laid out a bunch of recommendations for getting the market going. What are other states doing that are, uh, would help achieve those recommendations, such as, uh, I think, the one that made a lot of sense was making sure low-income and environmental justice communities benefit from this transformation if it does happen. And it's not like the solar sector where people in Perth and Boy are paying uh, subsidies to, for people in Mendham to put solar panels on their houses. That's a great question, and I could talk for the rest of the five minutes I think we have scheduled uh, uh, to answer the question, but just a few ways in which some other states are doing things right and, and how those would be easily transferable here. I mean, we're already doing uh, uh, a lot of uh, right things by being ready for having this conversation, but in terms of where we can take it next, uh, on the uh, equity side, as you just mentioned, there are ways to focus, and I think uh, you know we, we already discussed school bus uh, electrification. What are the ways in which we can incentivize equity and access to not only the grid benefits, as we as Mark mentioned up front, but in access to that clean transportation? So there are ways to focus and target on impacted communities uh, that we're seeing uh, in Massachusetts, for example. They've got a pilot. Uh, in a number of other states, we've seen uh, focus uh, on those specific issue areas, regional uh, transit authorities, places where we have uh, longer distance vehicles, you can start to replace those. On the regulatory side, there are a lot of things that we can do to just make this easier, cheaper, and more accurate. Uh, as Karen mentioned, uh, you know, how do we make sure that we're giving the utilities the tool uh, to have visibility into the charging that's happening uh, and to be able to manage it uh, in real time without breaking the bank? Uh, in Minnesota, uh, a pilot was just filed by Excel Energy, uh, which would allow for uh, EV charging stations to implement a time of use rate and to manage charging directly uh, without the need to install an additional utility meter. Uh, this is going to be critical uh, to give that flexibility to the utility um, to manage uh, and uh, measure what's going on uh, so that we can scale up. This is uh, a challenge that is uh, going to be felt uh, really significantly in New Jersey because when you get into multi-unit dwellings or other multifamily scenarios, infrastructure costs and challenges associated with supporting that charging really skyrocket. And if we're asking everyone in New Jersey to foot the bill to install an additional utility meter for every 
EV charger that goes out there, uh, this is going to become a much trickier conversation. So there are ways that we can have uh, uh, an approach that is both accountable, uh, uh, cheap, uh, and accurate. Uh, and in terms of uh, ways in which you know, we just set the process forward so that we can be flexible, uh, states like uh, Massachusetts, uh, uh, California, and we're seeing other states in the region consider just ways to set clear guidelines across the board for you know, how can some of the regulatory entities that we're talking about set clear, consistent criteria. Uh, so uh, this took place in Massachusetts, and ChargePoint was just one of the folks who supported uh, Eversource Energy's $45 million uh, investment program in EV charging uh, that was just approved by the Department of Public Utilities. So what Eversource is going to do is they're going to uh, invest in what's called the Make Ready uh, infrastructure, uh, which is all of the site uh, facility preparation up until the charging station, uh, while still leaving the decision of what technology to be installed up to the folks who are clear, consistent criteria by which we just can quickly evaluate, uh, look at the plan, make sure it supports both uh, uh, the acceleration of electrification, uh, as well as uh, embracing competition and making sure that we're not putting fingers on the scale. Having all that up front and having that conversation quickly uh, is really impactful. So those are sort of three examples, but if anyone wants to ramble on uh, with me afterwards, I'm happy to give a laundry list. Right, so, so New Jersey is the only state in the Mid-Atlantic, the only state in the Northeast not, well, that's not true, uh, Orange and Rockland, very north, Jersey, 50,000 50, uh, customers. But, but let me give you an example of what we're doing that's innovative in Maryland with EVs. Um, we're the first utility in the country to actually do demand response on chargers. And so one of the ways you manage the loading on a distribution charger is that you can actually um, basically throttle down a charger so you can take a level two charger and turn it into a level one charger for a couple of hours to get through some problem, right? Some, some loading problem so you don't have to replace the distribution, upgrade the distribution transformer. Um, you can, you can imagine it's a very simple alg algorithm, uh, very complex for me, but simple for people who write these things. Um, to imagine looking at the loading across um, looking at the charging across a number of homes attached to the same transformer and sort of throttling them down in um, sequence so and still ensuring that the car it reaches its maximum charge by whatever time of day uh, the customer has already set. Because all of this is run by technology, right? So I have my charger set to, to make sure my, don't start charging until after eight because that's when I get off-peak pricing uh, for my charger. Um, but have the car completely charged by the time I leave at 6 in the morning. And, and so between the technology in the car, the technology in the charger, and the signals from the utility, all of that just takes place automatically. Um, and it's, it's not hard. It's not hard anymore. Um, there, there are lots of things. You know, one of the, the points that I know are running out of time that, that we want to think about is whenever we talk about 90% of the charging happening at home, um, let's not forget 
a whole lot of people live in condos and apartments that don't have off-street parking that's guaranteed, that has dedicated a dedicated parking spot that makes charging available to them. And so there is a, an awful lot of the what I consider public charging, which simply means not in a private spot. It's not the right technical term for public. There's an awful lot of policy think-through you've got to have around how you ensure that you're going to allow access to people like that because it's a chicken-egg problem. There are people who want to have an EV but don't see a place to charge because they don't have a dedicated parking spot. And, and so we want to make sure that we are taking into consideration those things. And, and something Kevin mentioned that I think is worth talking about today, because of the way a fast charger's um, energy use is profiled, uh, they are obligated to um, uh, pay something called a demand charge. And that can be a real barrier to, um, uh, because it's a, very, it's a big charge, that could be a real barrier to some of the people that want to put in DC, uh, the fast chargers, the DC fast chargers. And so um, I think it's reasonable to say fast chargers may, may need to be exempted from a demand charge, but that's again a regulatory decision that has to go on through. And, and, and I just want to make a final pitch for the poor beleaguered utility. So, um, so They're really. They're being heard in Trenton as yeah. we speak. So, so um, we've talked about, and we're all in agreement that um, there is a lot of collaboration that has to happen, and it's not hard to see how EVs benefit everybody. That when you look at the total sum of the puts and takes, um, that, that it's way, way to everybody's advantage, both from a sustainability perspective and actually from an economic viewpoint. The challenge that we're going to have, and it's a real challenge, is a lot of the cost is going to be spent through utility rates. A lot of the benefits are going to be felt in other places. And so the, the BPU will be under enormous pressure not to allow rates to go up. Right? So I'm not, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on anyone, except to say this is a very significant policy issue. Because the individuals who get their bill at the end of the month from um, whether it's public service or from Atlantic City Electric, look at it and say, this is how much money i got to spend. They're not thinking about this is for a sustainable energy future, this is to enable EV expansion, this is to improve the environment for my grandchildren. None of that's going through their heads. What's going through their heads is i got to pay this bill, right? And so these are really significant issues when you think about the political will to make policy changes and stick to them over time in order to meet these long-term goals that the state has. Kevin, yeah, I was going to ask you to chime in on this. Mm -hmm. And what is the proper mix between who does the charging, the private sector, the utility, and how do you um, resolve that conflict? Sure. Well, I, number one, I don't think that there is a conflict. I think that this is a partnership, and having a conversation around how to make it sustainable is key. Really quickly, before I get to your uh, question, Tom, on the fast charging side, it is a huge opportunity. And addressing the realities of the absence of dedicated parking spots in dense urban environments is really key. So what we have here is the chance to think about fast charging hubs, right, that are going to support not only individual access, right, but as well as meet that key fleet need, right, for uh, public transit, 
uh, for transportation networking companies, your lifts, et cetera, that are uh, electrifying, as well as autonomous fleets and commercial and delivery vehicles, which are all becoming uh, electric. So uh, one of the key pieces to having all those different folks together is that you can um, ensure a sufficient level of utilization right, for that charging station. So by having those fleets use it, by having individuals use it, uh, you can make it more sustainable. Uh, the, the issue uh, that Karen brought up about demand charges, it is a real barrier for our fast charging site hosts. And uh, I don't think it's an on or off switch. There are a lot of ways in which you can structure it, but it's another challenge to think about, well, do we want to blanket and put on every street corner and in every parking lot and um, you know, uh, in every corner of the state uh, a hub of fast chargers? Uh, that'll uh, accelerate the problem uh, of the demand charge because you'll have such low utilization across the board that some of these uh, locations won't be sustainable. So it's, it is a complex mix. These are thorny issues. Uh, and in terms of figuring out what's the right uh, mix and partnership, uh, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach right, for program design. Uh, flexibility is key. Uh, having a core set of criteria uh, for uh, what a program would intend to do, uh, again, to, to point to uh, Massachusetts, uh, they've got a three-pronged set of criteria where any utility public-facing program must, one, be in the public interest. I think we can all agree there. Uh, two, that it's meeting a need that isn't currently met by the competitive market. There are places where there are higher barriers to enter. And uh, you know, is that a good place uh, to start off having that conversation? Where do we want the support for charging? And then uh, is it frustrating the growth of the competitive market? That's a key point where we think about, well, what are the program designs that both allow for flexibility, innovation, and competition in the market so that we're coming up with new ideas, as well as uh, being able to uh, have the utility maximize the benefits of, of its role in the market. So. It's, uh, I don't think there's a clash, as you mentioned, Tom. I think it's a real opportunity for collaboration. Pam? One quick thing to just add some fuel to that fire. Um, we try to think about where cars spend time because we've got a lot of people in this state that live in apartment complexes, actually probably higher than the national average. So that's a problem that we absolutely have to solve. And, and it's interesting because while it is absolutely true that cars zooming up and down the Garden State Parkway and the Turnpike, if they're cleaner and cleaner over time, are actually going to help the air quality issues in the urban areas, that's true. There's also really bad pockets of air that happen because of heat island effects and other things in cities, right? So um, in, when it comes to folks that live in these kinds of units, I think, as Kevin said, there's really no one solution. So consider this. There is a person who lives in an apartment complex that commutes every day to a workplace that does offer charging, right? So we know workplace charging has a role. But then there's also the person who lives in that apartment complex who works from home or doesn't work. And what do they do? So that's where we think community hubs are going to have a role. So it's going to be a number of different strategies. And we're always thinking also, you know, where do cars spend time when they're not driving around? Um, the other thing to think about in all this is the car, as I sort of alluded to before, it's like batteries on wheels, right? So from an energy perspective, I'm going to think about a car as a roving energy asset, right, that may have value it can take out of the grid or put into the grid at any given time. It may even be able to act in the not too distant future as a backup to my home in the case of outage. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's I think a number of, of different complexities here. The, the last thing I, I want to say is from a public policy perspective, when we talk about EVs, I also find myself in the same sentence also talking about things like resiliency, things like grid 2.0, things like 
DER, that's distributed energy resources, and microgrids, and you've heard all these terms in the last five or six years, they're all related and they all sort of help each other and they all piggyback on each other. And that's gonna also be a very interesting web for us to untangle on the policy side in, in terms of the puts and the gives and the puts. Jim? One quick thing to, to mention here, it hasn't come up yet, and, and Pam, you're talking about the uh, paradigm shift for the utilities. At the same time, there's a paradigm shift in mobility. Um, and so I think when you look at where people live in charge, you may be looking, particularly in urban areas, at you know, the, the sharing economy is changing the way people own and the way uh, people get around. And so, you know, in, in the typical New Jersey family that might have two, three, four cars, um, you know, they own them all or they own or lease them all. I think particularly in some of the more densely populated areas, you're going to see people don't own vehicles. Uh, people own uh, subscriptions to the right to use any vehicle they want uh, at any point in time. And I think that that's one of the areas where when I look at the kind of the low-hanging fruit for EVs, I think that's, um, that's an area where um, you're going to see EV adoption much sooner. And then it goes to the issue of, you know, just one of the ways to get people to buy cars is to get asses in seats. Um, and, and once they fall in love with a car, you know, they, they buy it or they use it. Uh, and so I think going forward, I think particularly for your urban um, dwellers, um, I think that car sharing subscription services are going to be a bigger part of the EV market than any of us really appreciate right now. Okay, um, we've uh, exceeded our time limit, but we have uh, a little bit more time for a couple questions. Uh, I haven't asked any questions from the audience, so I ought to do that. Uh, and this is essentially a technical question. Is, is the electrical code uh, relevant and friendly to installing charging stations in residence? Yeah, I, I mean, basically, if you want to um, install like a level two charger in your home, it's the equivalent of putting in a dryer. It's a standard 240 circuit. So there isn't anything, um, I think, unique about installing chargers that uh, anything unique to the building codes, unless there's something uh, I'd agree it's not challenging uh, to any more so than installing a dryer. I, I don't know that I trust myself to do it. I grew up in an apartment uh, building. Uh, so the idea of uh, having a dedicated parking, let alone stairs in your house, is a foreign concept to me. So uh, you know, I'd love to address that issue. I don't own a car. Uh, so how do we uh, figure that piece out? But in terms of uh, the electrical code, uh, making sure that we have consistency, it's, it's a place where we need to address facilitating the installation. But uh, I think, Assemblyman, as you were starting to say, on the building code side, it's just so critical to make sure that new construction or even retrofits right, are ready to plug and play. Uh, we don't have to mandate that everyone has the same technology uh, or uses the same charging solution. Um, I'm uh, very uh, adamantly for uh, just a, a technology neutral approach, but to get that capacity and to get that infrastructure in there. I don't know if you wanted to add to that. Because the other piece is, every time you go before a zoning board or a planning board, you're going to say, well, how many parking spaces? Every town has a different number for that and a different formula. Part of that discussion also needs to be at least permissive at the beginning 
allowing municipalities to say, not only do that, you have to have conduit going out with at least a certain level of electrical and other type of data to those parking spaces. Because that retrofit, and, and if you're upgrading a facility, making sure that occurs. And, and, and again, I think that was the non-sexy thing that, that somebody had mentioned before, but it is so, so important uh, because that reduces tremendously the, char the, the cost of installation for these charging. At that point, you're just, it's the cost of the, of the equipment, and you can place as many as you want at that point. It really becomes a lot more simple at that point. Um, but we have, that's not just there, it's also you know, where we have uh, bus stations and other things. Anytime we're doing any type of infrastructure upgrade, we need to be thinking about conduit. We need to be thinking about, is this going to support not only improving our telecommunications infrastructure, but is it doing our, our charging infrastructure as well? You know, uh, uh, many, uh, some uh, countries have banned the petroleum uh, combustion engine uh, by a certain date. Is that a realistic possibility here in the United States? Go ahead, Pam. So politically, it's a lot harder to say um, you should than you shouldn't. <laughs> and um, my take on that is, I you know, as you kind of just look at the basic physics of this, I think there there may be a time um, in the future. I'm not sure I'll be around for this uh, when we have to start thinking about saying no. I don't think we're there yet. I, I, it is helpful that other countries uh, around the globe have started to think about this. Um, I, you know. Uh, China, <laughs> um, in particular. Um, so China, China has a, an auto plan um, that by 2025 they want uh, IC engine car sales, new car sales, flatlined by 2025 wow. in China, <laughs> um, and that EVs will make up all that new vehicle sales growth. Um, so I, I do think that there may be a point in time in the future where we have, we, we have to consider that, but we're not nearly there yet, and politically, that will be very difficult. Excuse me, I'd have my business lobbyist uh, uh, union card pulled if I didn't say, <laughs> you know, we don't think government should mandate. Um, we've got a lot of experience with this. You know, government can mandate, manufacturers can build, um, but if manufacturers don't build and deliver vehicles that are uh, desirable to consumers and that pencil uh, for the budget of consumers, then all the mandates in the world aren't going to change what people actually drive. Uh, so again, you know, um, we think that there is a, um, a marketplace uh, imperative that's moving in this direction. We think new, new forms of mobility will uh, provide more opportunities, but I don't think the ICE engine is going away anytime soon. And I really think until we have a really robust secondary market that you talked about, I mean, the, again, we were talking about the average age of a vehicle is 11 years. It was, it was some, so 11 and a half. So, I mean, think about that. And uh, not everybody drives new vehicles. And that impact of that would disproportionately tend to fall on those of the, uh, on the lower income side. So I don't think we're even close to contemplating that when we have so many other benefits uh, to talk about. The one thing that we really didn't mention so much, although it was on one of the charts, all of that installation, all of those upgrades, everything else, there's a job benefit to that. 
and it's huge. So just keep that in mind. I know we have some of the Charge VC partners, particularly uh, my colleague, Wayne D'Angelo from the IBW. Those installations, that, so that investment that we're making in infrastructure, both on the utility side and on the charging side and the metering, all of that has a huge cumulative effect um, positive to our economy. And I know that's something with Governor-elect uh, Murphy really sees as a, as a key driver of us supercharging our growth here in the state. <clears throat> On the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, is there any prospect that the Trump administration will uh, uh, listen to car manufacturers and say we need to uh, abolish the California ZEV program? Jim? Yeah, I mean, this is a complicated um, landscape, and I don't want—I uh, don't want to make it too wonky. But you're talking two different things. You have Cathay, which Trump has a lot of say and sway over, and then you have um, the Clean Air Act uh, and the uh, CARB or California Air Resources Board carve out under the Cal under the uh, Federal Clean Air Act. Um, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? When Trump talked about tearing down the CAFE standards, Governor um, Brown and the California Air Resources Board dug their heels in and said, that may be for Washington, but we're going to go harder and deeper and faster on the CARB rules. Keep in mind that the CARB ZEV states, New Jersey is one of them, account for 30% of the car market in the U.S. So... You know, there is a uh, there is a um, uh, a critical mass that's already been been achieved here. Uh, we're not talking among you know, my colleagues in the car business, you know, at the retail end at least. We're not talking about you know, hell no, we won't go. We're talking about how do we get there. Manufacturers may still be fighting the rear guard action, but we're talking about how are we going to sell all these cars? Because as I said earlier, what could be better uh, than selling a half a million? Uh, new cars of the type that people haven't currently been buying. What would be better than turning that 11 and a half year average age of a car on the road to seven or eight years? Um, that would be nice. So the new thing is become a car dealer. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Uh, <laughs> and, and, but the, the whole, the, 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 the issues that uh, Jim is talking about is also about risk. The way the rules are set up right now, all the risk by putting these vehicles is on the car dealer. They ha just have to have it delivered and the car manufacturers are on one side. There's got to be a way to balance that risk in the right way and that's part of the conversations we're having. But that's true through this whole thing. Everything we're talking about, who pays for what, who has the risk, does the utility have all of the risk, do the shareholders have the risk, or is it the ratepayer that has the risk, or is it the consumer that has the risk, Who's paying for each of these pieces, and how do we balance that risk across the whole market and all the different life cycle and, and all the different actors in the market? That's what we're talking about here. And how do we make that that's something that's both fair, that has benefits, that helps everyone? Do we target things for environmental justice purposes? How do we make sure that all those school buses that are now charged up just before a snowfall, school gets canceled, let's redirect them out to be a, a point for... Uh, for backup to the grid in places where things may have fallen down. So we can start rethinking things now uh, in ways that we never have before. And, and I think that's the true promise. We just got to get the risk right and make sure all the benefits don't accrue to one actor 
and make sure the benefits are democratized across the system. Okay, thank you. Um, thank, uh, unfortunately, we're uh, way over our time, so uh, I'd like each of the panelists to sum up what they'd like to see happen as a top priority in the near future. For, for me, it's simple. I kind of just said making sure that we have this coordination of policies. Um, we really had a lot of different legislators all putting in kind of bills that really weren't working together in this realm. And that's why we've worked with ChargeGBC and the other stakeholders to try to make sure everything is working in place. What we want to see is a strong direct investment into electric vehicles so that we can, again, s charge up that economy, no pun intended or pun intended, so that we create jobs, we clean the air, and we make sure that we create um, a cleaner, greener New Jersey and a better economy. That's what I'd like to see. That means we have to have a strong support from all of the stakeholders in this room to make that investment, to make sure the money's not diverted to other places, and that we make that strong investment to move New Jersey not only to be a leader, but to catch, catch up in the first place uh, to the region. And so that's, that's my hope. Uh, as I said earlier, there are a couple of simple things. I mean, there, you know, let's look at the barriers to ZEV adoption. You know, the barriers to ZEV adoption are very simple, cost and infrastructure. Um, we've talked with the utilities, we've partnered with the utilities. There are incredible benefits to the ratepayer, to the investors, uh, and to the environment from a more and better rationalized grid, and EVs help tremendously there. So that is a problem that uh, is just about planning and engineering um, and, and political will. Cost is a bigger problem. Uh, as I said, there are really two issues with cost. One issue is just the manufacturing cost of low-volume uh, vehicles is unfortunately high. It will come down as higher volumes of vehicles are manufactured. But the second issue, until and unless automakers have skin in the game and are required to, um, to and, and can only earn their credits when vehicles are actually placed in service, which, by the way, is the only time the environment benefits, um, it, until manufacturers have the, um, have the monkey on their back to see vehicles priced and equipped to sell, uh, we're going to see vehicles piling up on dealers' lots, uh, and we're going to see... Um, uh, uh, slow adoption, uh, slower than would otherwise be necessary. Manufacturers can meet their obligations simply by dumping vehicles on dealers' lots. You're not going to see the uh, retail sales that we're looking for. I think my main underlying message is uh, that this is a critical question for New Jersey. And like most critical, difficult policy questions, it's not a question of whether we support transportation electrification, but how we do it. And making sure that we don't treat this as a yes or no question is very important because the way in which we support transportation electrification will have a serious impact on the extent to which it's successful. So in thinking about how and figuring out what policies should be pursued, uh, I think it's critical to make sure that we're focusing on equity in access to uh, any benefits that accrue, but uh, especially in terms of access to electric transportation itself. We want to make sure, uh, secondly, that the solutions are sustainable and scalable. Uh, this isn't a, a one-time issue. Uh, if we're uh, supporting a market and supporting a market that can thrive and grow, as is doing in, in other states across uh, 
the continent, uh, so I guess it'd be provinces up north, uh, we need to make sure that uh, we're not taking a one-size-fits-all approach and that when we talk about funding sources, how do we make sure that we're leveraging uh, funding from the private side, that we're bringing in new folks into this refueling ecosystem uh, uh, to expand the pie. And uh, we need to make sure, uh, thirdly, that uh, the solutions that we're coming to uh, are flexible uh, to respond to innovations uh, in autonomous vehicles, uh, the fleetification uh, of transportation and mobility as a service, as well as transformative. Uh, we need to rethink the way that we plan, zone, as the assemblyman mentioned, uh, and uh, if we don't take that opportunity, uh, there'll be a value left on the table. So uh, let's take this opportunity uh, to transform transportation in New Jersey. Fleetification, I like that. <laughs> Uh, so this is what I want. Um, I, in the first 100 days of this new administration, I want to see them, uh, I want the legislature and the governor-elect to sign a few bills that we've been working on. One has to do with goals and authorization. One has to do with rebates for cars. One has to do with DCF, DCFC networks. And the other has to do with what we call right to charge, which, which starts to get to the multi-unit dwelling issue that we talked about and making sure that charging happens in a way that's most beneficial for all rate payers. Um, in addition to those things that I want, I also want to see utility filings up at the Board of Public Utilities that harmonize with the roadmap and that get processed through the Board of Public Utilities in a timely fashion. So that's what I want. And Karen, you're supposed to, uh, rumor has it you're following, you're complying with Pam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pam's mandate. Yeah, I don't wanna, I don't wanna mess with her wish list. Yeah. Um, so, uh, pretty simply, we are, we are preparing, we are, there is a stakeholder group through the uh, BPU uh, that we're participating in, and we are uh, preparing a filing that we hope will be compre comprehensive and covers both residential, commercial, um, infrastructure needs and um, uh, education and outreach for customers along with uh, some innovative uh, rate, rate incentives for charging. Um, but what I hope for is that we've got some clear policy statements uh, coming out of the state so that we're certain that whatever we're proposing is in alignment with that. And so some of this is timing. Um, we, we don't want to wait forever but we, we want to wait long enough that we get some signal that we understand that we're headed in a direction that's correct and collaborative with the rest of the state. Thank you. Um, I apologize to the people in the audience who has uh, submitted questions, which I didn't get to. Uh, we could go on for no, at least I could uh, ask questions for another hour or so. But I want to thank our panelists. They were fabulous and uh, very important. So uh, thank you very much. And John Scott, closing thoughts. I also want to thank Tom uh, for moderating. You did a wonderful job. And I just want to say thank you all. Uh, we will be sending out, we usually do it in paper form. We'll be sending out to each of you a survey, which we'd love it if you'd fill it out and give us feedback on the event. Uh, otherwise, drive safely, electric cars or not. Um, and re reminder, we're in the middle of our fundraising drive. I'll be sticking around. I take your credit card while we're here. But um, you also should be getting an uh, email that's going to make a plea to you. So um, please support us. And thank you again for being here.
For more information on NJ Spotlight and its programs, visit njspotlight.com. This program was produced in the studios of statebroadcastnews.com, one of the Lubetkin Media Companies based in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for listening, and take good care. Thank you.